passage is going to be Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, and chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. And this is on page 899 in the Blue Bible, if you're using one of those. Page 899. So... Three questions that we're going to address today. Two of these are, two of these questions are kind of like big picture for the entire passage. And then the third question is just something we're going to touch on very quickly. But the big, broad, general question is there a right way to pray? We touched on that last week. We're going to look at that again today. Second question is is it enough to just be genuine and pray from the heart? If I can pray like that, Is that enough? And we're going to look into that some today. And the third question is, you know, what about Jesus' warnings against praying with vain repetitions? Does that mean I can't repeat a prayer or pray a written prayer or pray the same thing over and over again every day? So we're going to touch on that today too. So I'm going to read from Matthew 6. I'll read verses 5 through 9. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That might be a strange place to stop. There's a reason for it. You'll see a little bit later. Now let's turn a page over to chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. There's a common idea and a common theme in both these passages that we're going to bring together today. So verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you... If his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? All right, everybody. There's a lot here. Forgive me. For cutting you off, but there's a lot here. We're going to have two more weeks to talk about prayer after today before we get into 1 John on June the 2nd. Um, everybody here knows that there's a lot of people that live at my house. And I, like you, am made in God's image. And I am being conformed into the image of Christ, Romans 8.29. So I'm becoming like God. I think we're all headed that way. Um, At least all of us in this room. Um, 
there's something that God can do that I don't think I'll ever be able to do. He can't hear multiple people and understand them and engage them at the same time. In my house, it's very easy for one person to be talking and in the middle of the sentence, someone else busts in the room and before they even know if I'm in there or not, they start talking to me. Sometimes they start talking to me before the door opens. <laughs> and then they wonder what I'm not saying. So we, we've got a few ground rules that just kind of help create some order in my household. And one of those rules is that you may not come up to me and pull on my sleeve or pat on my shoulder or do this and say, Daddy, 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 Daddy. That is not the proper way to get your dad's attention. It doesn't work that way. You all know how much I love my kids. And I, it is, and I'm, forgive me, ladies, I just realized this morning that I'm preaching a sermon about the Father on Mother's Day. I'm sorry. So <laughs> let me go ahead and say that. But it was too late to change it. All right. So we have a good, sovereign, loving, powerful Father in heaven. And he's a father who listens, and he's a father who already knows what we need. There is a correct way to approach God. There's a correct way for my kids to approach me. If I'm not talking to anyone, they can start talking to me. But if I'm already talking to someone, they need to come and stand quietly beside me, or if they need to put their hand on my hand or on my arm for a moment just to... Let me know. I can look at them and reaffirm that, yes, I know you're there and I'll talk to you in a moment. Most of you have probably noticed me do that here in this setting before or after a service. There's an appropriate way to get the Father's attention. And there is an inappropriate way to get the Father's attention. I love how verse 5 of chapter 6 starts out. And when you pray... Not pray, or if you pray, or you should pray, but when you pray. He starts out verse 7 the same way. And when you pray. There is an assumption. There is an expectation here that God's people are going to be people who pray. And in these first four or five verses, Jesus mentions two groups of people who pray wrongly. And from the mention of, of those two groups, he tells us what to do differently that will lead us to pray correctly in a way that pleases him and honors him. In verses 5 and 6, he talks about hypocrites. These hypocrites are the same group of religious leaders that were responsible for having Jesus crucified on the cross. There's a show of religion, but very little to no substance behind it. Verse 5 reads... And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. God is calling us to pray in such a way that gains the attention of God that does not seek the praise 
the attention or the approval of man. The hypocrites mentioned in this passage who are on the street corners and in the synagogues, they're noticed by men, but they are not noticed by God. But when we go to our Father, when we go into our room or into our closet, as some translations say, when we shut the door and pray to our Father who is in secret, in that private mode of prayer, when we do that with the right heart, we will gain the attention and the notice of God. If you pray seeking men's attention, that's all you're going to get. But if you pray seeking God's attention... He is a good, loving, sovereign, powerful Father, and He will hear you. Now, we could wrongly look at these verses and say, well, Jesus is saying you should never pray in public, that you should only pray privately. And that's not what He's saying at all. Okay, if you look ahead from verse 9 through 13 of this chapter, He actually gives us a prayer that Christians have been praying together publicly for 2,000 years now. Okay, this is not a prohibition of public gathered corporate prayer. Jesus is not saying you can't pray with your family around the table at dinner time. He's just saying if you're going to pray publicly, you need to do it right. And although he mentions praying privately by yourself to your father in secret, although he mentions that is the right thing to do here, he's not saying that's the only right way to do it. And he's not saying that you can't screw up private prayer. I've done it. Private prayer can be screwed up and messed up just like public prayer can. So he talks about the error of the hypocrites and then he tells us the right way to do it. Do it differently. We get to verse 7 and he mentions another group of people. He mentions the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles are people who are not Jewish. And for the people in this day, and this is true for some Jews also, but this was particularly true for the Gentiles, they were people that were very far from God. They didn't inherit the promises of Abraham and Isaac you know, that God made to, to the Jewish people early on. They, they were not a part of the old covenant. And so they, they were outside of the family of God. They were outside of the Jewish nation, so they were far from God. Today, as we think about the word Gentile and ask how does that apply to our nation, I think it applies best, in, in a, at least in a simple way, to anyone who's far from God. To someone outside of the new covenant to someone outside of faith in Christ. And so he's telling them in verse 7, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be hurt for their many words. Now in today's world, Gentiles or people who are far from God, you know, they're less likely to have a specific God that they are praying to than what these people were in that day. Back then there were many gods that the Gentiles would pray to. Today, there's not as much of a specific God that they would pray to. So there's a few differences, I think, between Jesus' world then and our world today. But as far as the Gentiles back then go, is that they would pray and they would think that they would be heard because they say so much. It was more of that, Daddy, 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 Daddy. If I say it long enough, if I say it loud enough, I'll get God's attention and... He'll hear me. The Gentiles in these verses, they don't understand that God is a loving, sovereign, good, and powerful Father 
who already knows what we need. They don't understand that. This story reminds me a little bit about the Old Testament story. It's in 1 Kings chapter 18. You've got the prophet Elijah. He's one of the few prophets at that time. And he's telling the people to come to God. He's telling the people, quit playing with these other gods and come to the one true God. Well, the false gods, particularly the god called Baal, had 450 prophets that were at a place called Mount Carmel. There were 450 of them there. And Elijah, who was a prophet of the one true God, he was the only prophet there for the one true God. And there was a bit of a showdown that was about to take place. So, long story short, they prepare two bulls. The prophets of Baal have one. Elijah has one. They slice them up. They put them on the altar. And the, the, the false prophets are going to pray first, and then Elijah's going to pray after that. And the false prophets are going to ask their God to bring fire down from heaven to show everyone that their God was the real God. And Elijah was going to pray to his God, who is the true God in this story. And he expects fire to come down from heaven. And whoever gets fire to come down, it's going to show that that God is the real, one, true God. Well, in this story, the prophets of Baal begin crying out. They're praying, send the fire, God. And it's not happening. So they keep doing it. They're pretty consistent. Maybe we should do something to get his attention. Go get your sword. Then they started dancing. And they started mutilating themselves. And the thought process that was in their mind was that if we do all of these things, we will get Baal's attention. I have to do something to get his attention. The only reason that God would do something for me is because I do all this stuff to get him to notice me. That's the thought process of the Gentiles. That's the thought process of people today at times when they pray. Elijah saw what they were doing and he begins to mock them. He says, maybe your God is in the restroom. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's on a vacation. I know what it was. He stayed up too late last night, and he's got to take a nap so he can't answer the phone. And Elijah began mocking him, and there came a point where, where Elijah just says, it's time, and he prays. He says, God, send down fire from heaven. The fire from heaven falls. Elijah's prayer was heard because his God was there. Now, there's a difference between our prayers being heard and our prayers being answered. God hears many more of our prayers than He necessarily gives us what we ask for. And there's reasons for that. And we'll look at that a little bit next week and the week after. Okay? But we are not heard because of our empty phrases. Or because of all of the good things that we say. Because of all the good things that we do. I remember one time hearing a person here in this room pray for someone else. And they needed God to do something for the person they were praying for. And they began praying, and here's what they said. God, this person has done this for you. God, this person loves you so much. God, this person has done that for you. And there was this long list of wonderful, good works that the person has done. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
But the prayer went sour, and I remember just cringing inside and getting so sad. This has only happened here once. But I remember getting so sad because the prayer should have been answered because the person was so good. We don't earn things from God because of our good works and because of the things that we do. It doesn't work like that. That's not how God designed it. God hears his child because he's a loving father. God hears the cries of his children because he's sovereign and because he's powerful and because he is good. We get to verse 7 where it says, Do not heap up empty phrases. If you're familiar with the King James Version, it says, Use not vain repetitions. And it's easy to come across this and say, I can't read a prayer. Or I can't repeat a prayer. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to memorize a prayer. I, I, I use written prayers. I got this book. I got a few. All kinds of written prayers. Because sometimes, you know what? I need to pray and I don't feel like it. And these guys help me out. Anybody else ever been like that? Alright. So, me praying... And I'll find one of those prayers I really like, and I'll pray it every day for a few weeks sometimes, or a few days. And it just kind of helps me with whatever I'm going through at the moment. But is repetitious prayer wrong? No, not at all. There's no problem with repetitious prayer. The problem it happens, it comes, when the prayers become vain or empty. The warning in verse 7 is against vanity or emptiness, as the ESV says. Now, if you only pray repetitious prayers, I encourage you to step out of your comfort zone and come up with something. <laughs> Change it up every now and then because there's something to gain and, from that and to be there. We get to verse 8. Do not be like them. Do not be like the Gentiles. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We have more talk about the Father. We saw this back in verse 6. And when I read this, your father, that, that we shouldn't heap up empty phrases. We shouldn't try to get his attention by saying daddy, 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 daddy over and over again like that. We shouldn't do that. Why? Because our father in heaven already knows what we need before we ask him. We must not pray thinking that you know, God was taking a nap and he doesn't know what I'm going through because he just woke up five minutes ago. He knows. His eye has been upon you. If he, but if he already knows, then why should we ask? There's several answers to that question. Number one, we should ask because he tells us to. We should also ask because we are in relationship with him. And asking requires humility. It requires us approaching him and saying, Hey God, we can't do this. And I need you. Your presence, your activity... You stepping in is necessary and required in order for me to move forward and live my life. So as I read these verses and I look at question number three behind me, what do we do in response to these questions? We must believe that our prayers will be heard because we have a good, loving, sovereign, and powerful Father who already knows what we need before we ask Him. What do I want you to do? What do I want you to learn how to do more and more? 
What do I want to learn how to do better based on these passages today? I want to be able to pray knowing that my prayers are heard, that they are in the hands of God, and that He is good, loving, sovereign, and powerful, and He already knew what I needed before I asked Him. So we get to verse 9, and it says, Pray then like this. I like that. The pray then very much connects what starts in verse 9 through verse 13. It connects that to what he just said about the Gentiles and the hypocrites. So pray then like this. Because you are to pray in secret, because you are to pray knowing that God already knows what you need before you ask Him, here's how you should pray. You should pray, Our Father in heaven. Is there a right way to pray? Yes, there is. We must be praying to the right God. Just praying in general, as is quite popular today, especially on Facebook. Okay? The false gods, your juju, your good vibes, whatever it is, those things do nothing to bring about God's kingdom here on this earth in this present day and hour. Are you praying genuinely? Are you praying from the heart? You know what? That is very important. And there's much scripture that we could go to that says we must do it that way. But I don't care how heartfelt your prayers are. If you're not praying to the Father in heaven, then it's not true prayer. And it is certainly not prayer that accomplishes anything. God is Father. And when we pray, we need to pray to Him. Now, I'm not saying you can't pray to Jesus. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, prayed to Jesus. I'm not even going to say that you can't pray to the Holy Spirit, because He's God also. But the majority of the times in the Bible when we see prayer... It's addressed to God the Father. We see that, and so I think that should be our pattern for prayer most of the time. Let's go to chapter 7, verse 7. Flip the page over, maybe. Verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, it would be easy to read these two verses and say, well, God is going to do anything for anyone who asks. But we cannot take that teaching from these two verses. There are many passages in Scripture, including the ones that we just looked at in chapter 6, that show us that we can pray wrongly. I'm thinking about doing a series on how to never get your prayers answered or how to screw up your prayer life. Because... <laughs> There's, I can find, I've done some work on this. I can think of six passages, one of which we just covered, where it tells you, what you how you can pray that will mess up your prayers every single time. But verses 7 and 8 doesn't mean that anyone can pray and ask for anything and that God's obligated to do it. It doesn't mean that. And we see that in the next three verses, and we see that in other places in Scripture. So we get to verses 9 through 11, and these verses give us an analogy or a metaphor that I believe most of us can connect with. In chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, Jesus does something very similar here that he did in the parable about the unrighteous judge that we looked at last week in Luke chapter 18. A comparison is made between God and imperfect people. And there's a lot of things that are different between God and imperfect people, but there are some things that are similar or the same. So verse 9 and 10, we get rhetorical questions. Jesus says, which one of you... If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil... What? What? Did you hear that? Jesus, he's talking about me. 
If you then who are evil, he's talking to us. We are not good people by nature. We are totally depraved in every way. It doesn't mean that we can't do good things. It doesn't mean that lost man separate from God can't do good things. But what it does mean is that our nature as we stand before God and the primary bent of our will is naturally towards evil. So Jesus in verses 9 and 10, he's like, look, if your kid asks you for something they need, you're not going to give them a copperhead. No, dad's not going to do that. Verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Here's what Jesus is saying. If normal, human, sinful dads want to do good things for their kids, and there's evil people, how much more will the perfect, loving, holy, sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe want to do good things for his kids? Do you know God? Then you're part of his family. Have you come to God through faith in Christ? He's your dad. Abba, Father. He's your Papa. There's something special about that. And God takes that very, very seriously. And I stand before you today as an imperfect father to my kids, and I have an imperfect father, and I'm looking at imperfect fathers, I stand here before you knowing all of our, well, many of our imperfections, and I have many, and if I want to do good things for my kids, how much more will a good father and perfect in heaven, your good and perfect father, how much more will he hear your prayers and move in accordance with his will to answer your prayers and to meet you and to be there for you and with you? Here's what we must do today. We must believe that we will be heard when we pray because we have a good and loving and sovereign, powerful father who already knows what we need before we ask Him. Now some, for some, it may be difficult relating to God as Father. Fatherhood is an idea that we're familiar with. But if you grew up trying to do good enough on the football team to gain your Father's approval, then it makes sense to me that you would want to try to be good enough to seek the Heavenly Father's approval. If you had to bring home at least a B-minus on your report card for your dad to speak to you, and that was the only way you could get in good with him, then it makes sense to me that you would approach the Heavenly Father like that. And that's if you've suffered abuse or neglect from your earthly father. I understand why it might be hard to trust the Father in heaven. What's the, the shift, the mental shift that has to be made is that we must do our best to not take our earthly Father's imperfections and to put those on God. But we've got to flip it upside down. And we have to realize that the Heavenly Father is the real essence of fatherhood. That, that He is what fatherhood is supposed to be. He is what fatherhood 
is all about. And anything good that exists in your Father is from the Heavenly Father. And anything bad, anything wrong that your earthly father has done to you is because your earthly father is a sinner. And he is not like your Father in Heaven. So be careful not to project your view or, or your impression from your earthly father upon your heavenly father. But look to your heavenly father as he's revealed in his word and realize that your earthly father's imperfections, and I say that, and I know we love our earthly father. I know that. But it, simultaneously, while that happens, we're well aware of how our earthly fathers have hurt us. My kids are well aware of how I have hurt them. We have to be careful with this. It is hard to do. So I'm going to wrap up here shortly. But as I've thought about the father of the sleep, the story of the wealthy father with two sons in Luke 15 comes to mind. We often call that story the story of the prodigal son. And you know the story. You know, wealthy farmer, dad, he's got two sons. One of them works real hard, plays by the rules, does everything he should. And then one son decides he doesn't want to be a part of the family anymore. He receives his inheritance early. He goes out, he spoils it on wild living. And one day in his poverty, he gets a job working for a pig farmer and he gives the pigs the sloth. For them to eat, and he looks at their food, and he wishes that he had that food. And he realizes what he's missing. He decides to go home to the father. That, that story, American church approach, we think that story is about the little brother who ran away. All right? Yeah, he's a big part of the story. But that story is about the father. What was the father doing? father was waiting for the son to come home. The father was broken when his son left him. When his son ran into sin, the father's heart broke. What was the father doing as the son started coming back? He was looking for him. He was ready for him. What did the father do when he saw the son? He ran to him and embraced him and he celebrated. My son is back from the dead. Your Father in Heaven is infinitely rich, infinitely wise, good, and perfect. And His ear is attentive to our prayers. He will hear you. Even in your imperfections, He will hear you. On your worst day, if you cry to Him with the right heart, He will hear you. That's beautiful. That's exciting. That gives me hope. I love it. I really love it. And here's the thing about the hypocrites and the Gentiles. They can't call God their Father. So because they can't call God their Father and get His attention, they got to get man's attention. Because they can't call God their Father and get His attention, they have to do crazy things like slice and dice themselves up and do crazy dances and say the same thing over and over and over again. Because God is not their Father. 
And I tell you today, there was a time in my life when God was not my father. And one of the popular ideas floating around in our world today, I see it on Facebook, I even hear it on the news, is that we assume that God is everyone's father. Well, I'll tell you, the first 13 years of my life, God wasn't my father. It was because I was lost in sin. But at the age of 13, when I called out on Him as God, as I turned from my sin and placed my faith in Him, I became a part of His family. He adopted me. Adoption is necessary. It's critical. It's beautiful. Ephesians 1, it says He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. What was God's plan for you? That He would adopt you and make you a child of His. That was His plan for you. In Galatians 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, talking about Jesus, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And Paul goes on at the end of that Galatians 4 passage to say that if we are children of God, then we are an heir through God. So let me ask you today, is God your Father? If He's not then do you approach God and live your life as the hypocrites do? Do you try to be really, really good for Him just so He'll notice you? Do you hope that your good works outweigh your bad works so that maybe, just maybe, He'll let you in? Are you a Gentile? Do you live like one hell six days, or, or do live like hell six days a week? And then try to be religious on Sunday morning. Just like it says God knows what you need before you ask Him, God knows what you need when you think He's not watching. I want to ask you, if you don't know God, to come to God. To make Him your Father. There is nothing that you have done that is too bad that He would turn you away. When you come to Him, when you call on Him, He will receive you. And I end with this verse, John 1.12. But to all who did receive Him, talking about Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. If you are a child of God, He hears your prayers because He is a good, sovereign, loving and perfect Father. And He knows what you need before you ask Him. Let's pray.